Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is Marlene Schwartz. I am the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. And I am delighted today to welcome our guest, Olivier de Chute, who is a professor at the University of Louvain and at the College of Europe. He is also a visiting professor at Columbia University and a member of the Global Law School faculty at NYU. He was appointed in 2008 to the United Nations Special Rapporteur position on the right to food by the Human Rights Council. And he has been doing this work since then and will be finishing it up in the middle of next year. So welcome to New Haven. Thank you for having me on the program. So let us just begin by um, me asking you, what exactly does it mean to be the United Nations Special Rapporteur? Well, my role is really to examine which problems result from the food systems and and how to address them by making recommendations to governments that I present uh, at the Human Rights Council in Geneva and before the UN General Assembly in New York. And so I present regular reports each year, and I also travel in countries over which I prepare reports to provide advice to governments. So one of the things that um, you've been thinking a lot about throughout your career is sustainable food systems. So what exactly is a sustainable food system? What does it entail? Well, it's actually a complicated notion, and the notion of sustainability is a sort of uh, suitcase word that includes three separate concerns. Um, First, a sustainable food system is one that respects the environment by reducing the negative impacts of food production on the loss of biodiversity, by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, by uh, ensuring that um, we produce food in ways that do not pollute the soils or the water. Uh, Secondly, sustainable food systems refer to systems that um, are sufficiently Uh, remunerative for the different actors of the food system, the farm workers, the farmers, uh, all different um, actors in the food system who very often are not paid well enough for the work that they perform in the current uh, state of things. And thirdly, sustainable food systems are systems that provide adequate health, nutrition outcomes, um, that provide a diversity of foodstuffs, allowing people to lead healthy and active lives, and not simply keeping them alive by avoiding starvation. So one of the things that people think about a lot when they're considering the environment and our impact on the environment is greenhouse gases. And I think that a lot of Americans think about, you know, the cars we drive and transportation. But how much does the agricultural system really contribute to greenhouse gases? Well, there are two ways of measuring this. First, we can ask how much greenhouse gases result from food production per se on the field uh, by using tractors, by using chemical fertilizers that produce nitrous oxide, which is one very potent greenhouse gas. And there the assessment is that probably 13.5-14% of greenhouse gases that are man-made result from agriculture alone. But if we broaden the definition and include uh, the forests that are being destroyed to create pastures and cultures, if we include the energy that goes into packaging, into processing uh, the food, into transporting the inputs and transporting the food, that goes into preserving the food and the cold chain, uh, the amount uh, of greenhouse gases that are um, produced by the food systems in industrialized countries is really huge. It's about 33, maybe 35% of greenhouse gases that are attributable 
to the way food systems have developed in, in rich countries. Wow, that's really remarkable. So it really is a third that is attributable to the agricultural system. Um, so why is it so hard then to get people to change their personal behavior? I mean, I think that people have been hearing about, you know, the climate change and the importance of acting now because our children are going to suffer the consequences of our inactivity. And yet it seems like the average citizen doesn't really take it seriously or feel like they have a personal responsibility to change. I think there are two major explanations. The first one is that information that is not um, um, not interesting to hear, that people prefer to repress because it runs against their lifestyles and obliges them to take responsibility, is information that uh, people um, tend to ignore and not to process really, uh, to act upon. And in fact, social psychologists have um, highlighted um, this phenomenon and des- described this as the, the white male syndrome, um, which is a syndrome by which we do not perceive and process information that obliges us to renounce our lifestyles when they are lifestyles of a privileged elite. So that's a first major problem. A second problem is that we feel disempowered in the food systems. Uh, We feel that the food systems are composed of a large number of elements, very few of which we can change, certainly by our individual consumers' behavior. And so we feel that we have no responsibility because of the diffusion of responsibilities across a large number of actors constituting together the food systems. And I think this is one reason why we have to re-empower citizens to allow them to have greater control over the food system so that they feel they have a stake and a responsibility in changing them. So I think because it is such a complicated system, the, our food system, and has so many layers, when we think about trying to make a transition, trying to really you know, help that change, um, what would you say are the different levels at which a transition could occur? Well, I suppose we could make a distinction between trans- transitions that are directed by the state, by public authorities, and that are directed top-down by regulation, by by taxation, by subsidies that must change, indeed, uh, given the unsustainability of current food systems. Um, secondly, we can have transitions that are led by market actors, um, retailers, for example, who understand that the consumer demands something else than cheap calories and try to source more responsibly the food that they provide uh, to take into account these new emerging concerns for sustainability. And thirdly, we have transitions that can be driven by citizens uh, taking uh, the food systems in their own hands and trying to build alternatives to dominant food systems by creating, for example, community gardens, by entering into community-supported agricultural schemes, um, by um, um, entering into short food chains, um, um, buying from farmers markets, etc. So we have a wide array of initiatives that are actually citizen-led, bottom-up, and not directed either by the state or by the dominant market actors. So there really are roles for all of these different parts of our society and, and different things that people can do. So if, if someone is listening to this podcast and wanted to make a change right now, um, for example, a change in their household or the way they purchase their food, and they were interested in both things they could do in the short term as well as things that maybe might take a little bit longer, what, what would be your top 
you know, sort of your top three things that you wish that people would go ahead and try? Well, first of all, I think consumers' choices matter. Um, they matter for two reasons. First, because of the the fact that some ways of producing food or commercializing it shall be rewarded and others discouraged. And they matter because they send a signal to the political system that the demands of consumers are changing and that the government should do something to meet these these alternative um, demands. And what I would recommend is, for example, um, if I were to list three priorities, um, to reduce the consumption of meat. In our rich countries, we consume 110, maybe 120 kilograms of meat per year per person. That is maybe four times what we would need, um, according to nutritionists. And it certainly puts a very strong um, um, pressure on resources, given the diversion of huge amounts of cereal to, to feeding uh, cattle in industrial uh, meat, pro meat production processes. Uh, secondly, um, we should encourage families to have family meals um, where different members of the families meet, um, um, eat together, cook their meals, um, having more healthy diets as a result. And also because when you eat in a collectivity rather than individually alone or in front of the TV screen, you are actually controlled by the others and you will reduce your consumption as a result. So number two priority would be to uh, prioritize family meals and to have enough time for this and to reduce the time spent on on commuting, for example, which, of course, uh, um, is, is a huge program in itself. Um, thirdly, we need to um, favor local um, um, production um, to rebuild local food systems and reconnect the consumer to the local producers. And I think this has tremendous benefits in allowing people to better understand the food they depend on, um, to rebuild trust between producers and consumers, and also um, to reduce the impact of um, long food chains on the environment, uh, food miles, but also all the packaging and conservation that goes with this. So to summarize, it sounds like get some great vegetarian recipes and make them for your family, sit down together and enjoy them, and then find out in your community where you can get food that is being grown right there near where you live. I actually have one more question, and this is a question as a researcher. So, you know, I can certainly participate in this as a mother, you know, as an individual, but what do you think that the research community has to contribute to this problem? Well, I think it's a natural tendency for researchers to come up with solutions that they believe um, uh, are the best and, and that must be imposed uh, to the communities via legislation, via tax reform, for example, when in fact we may, as researchers, have to be more modest and more ambitious at the same time, more modest by listening to what consumer citizens demand from the food systems, by examining the initiatives that activists do take already and that we may have to research more about, um, and more ambitious in uh, proposing real alternatives to the food systems as they have developed over the past 40 years, um, rather than trying to tinker with the existing food systems and, and change them in a much more incremental manner. Um, and I believe personally that researchers have much to gain in studying 
what social innovations in food systems have to deliver uh, by promoting the emergence of a wide range of alternatives to the dominant food systems and promoting what might be called social diversity. In other terms, a proliferation of initiatives that provide a wide range of choices to consumers so that they vote in a way with the way they, they buy and with the way they consume. They vote for systems uh, that are alternative to the dominant food systems and that will put pressure on the dominant systems to reform themselves. And I think that is probably what researchers should pay greater attention to in the future. Well, that is really helpful. You've definitely given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Again, this is Marlene Schwartz. I am the director of the Rudd Center, and you can listen to other podcasts from our website, www.yalereddcenter.org. Thank you.